preaching of men and women, you bring your word revealed through your spirit to your people. And it is a mystery, Father, that we could open a book written thousands of years ago, read and and relate to what it says, and somehow, in that finite work, there is an infinite work done in the hearts of those who listen. We don't understand it, but neither, Father, do we need to. For the beauty of what you've designed in your word is that you've revealed yourself, yourself to mere infants, to those like us who long to know the things that you've prepared for us in this book, and yet without your help, Father, without the Spirit speaking to us, they're beyond our comprehension. And yet, Father, you condescend to speak through the mouth of someone like me who knows nothing apart from your revelation and who has nothing to bring to the process, and yet, and yet, Lord, you can use me or anyone to bring something eternally true to the hearts of those who hear. And that is such an amazing work. We do it every week. We take for granted, perhaps, that it's happening, but it is happening, and I thank you, Father, for it. On a weekend in which we think about thank yous and appreciation, having thankful hearts for what, whatever you have given us and whatever we have in our lives, Father, I hope that we'll never lose sight of what we have to be most thankful for the Word of God, written and then later incarnate, revealed to us, and made real in our hearts. Help that process one step further tonight as we study under your guidance. In Jesus' name, I pray. Well, friends, we're following Jesus in the final year of his life on earth, and it's a year of turmoil and conflict. It all began, as you remember, with the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus as their king through their leaders, and as a result, they've lost the opportunity to receive the kingdom in that day, in that generation. Now, of course, the individual Jew here or there who puts their faith in Jesus, uh, they are still saved by their faith, and to those who do, Jesus ministers to them continually, teaching them, healing them at times, and so on. But for the crowd as a whole, for the nation as a whole, He now refuses to reveal anything more of himself to that crowd. He is no longer teaching, no longer healing publicly by and large. And instead, what he's been doing is secretly preparing his disciples to take over the mission of the kingdom program. That is, this in-between state between his first coming and his second coming, in which he is using us, the church, to present to the world the truth of the gospel in the hope of converting them to a faith in him which makes them citizens of a kingdom that will one day be revealed. That's the kingdom program, recruiting citizens. Now these guys that he's turning it over to, or soon will be, uh, they have to be prepared for that, and the work that he has in that preparation has been made all the more difficult because they're having a hard time grasping the concept that he's leaving. In fact, more than just that, they can't make sense of his statements when he says he's going to suffer and die and be risen again. These things make no sense to them right now. He's hinted at it more than a few times, and at least once, he's plainly stated this. And even though they hear the words, uh, it's kind of like sometimes my wife says to me, I know you heard me, but why aren't you listening to me? And I think there's a certain, uh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> there's, a certain, there, there's a certain truth to that in this case. That is, they, they hear him, but they don't really hear him, or at least they're not accepting what they hear. And they're going to have to understand it, ultimately, because they're going to be responsible for explaining it to us. 
and to the church at large, right? These are the men who carried that message forward in the first century of the church. So as we go back into chapter 17 today, we're back to another moment in which Jesus takes opportunity to remind these guys of what's coming. And that starts in verse 22. Verse 22, it says, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. All right, well, that's now, if you're counting, that's now the second time that Jesus has stated in a very straightforward way what is coming for him. He says plainly, I'll be delivered into the hands of men, Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, that he will be killed and then raised again on the third day. This, friends, is the essence of the gospel, and it is at the core of our faith. I, I, just as a little aside, talking to uh, members of my family, my extended family, um, it's always interesting when the word gospel gets used because many of you may know I don't come from a family of believers. So, uh, and yet they go to church in a, in a certain tradition un, uh, without faith attached. And th- so they think the word gospel has a certain generic meaning. Uh, my family members will use it to describe uh, alternatively the Bible, uh, the New Testament, uh, the four gospels, um, any, any blessing of God, Anything that sounds churchy or religious, I mean, the word just gets used uh, virtually without meaning at all times. Gospel, gospel, gospel. And I've tried at times to explain to them, no, there's a very certain meaning to that word. Let me explain it to you. At which time they say, well, who are you to tell me what that word means? I'm like, okay, I guess, that's, I guess there's no hope here. So there's this frustration with me in that moment because the word itself and the meaning behind it is not subject to debate. It's, it's not fungible. It's certain. It is a word that means that Jesus is the one who came as promised to die for our sins and was raised again on the third day, and our faith in that promise provides us with eternal life. That's it. You can say it a hundred other ways, but that's it. And you hear that today preached as history. They were hearing it in their day preached as prophecy. And so as hard as it is for some people today to believe in that historical resurrection, I guess it's not unreasonable that they would have found it even harder to believe in it in advance without having the history behind them. They must have asked themselves when they heard Jesus say these things, how can anyone harm Jesus? How can anyone harm God's anointed? I mean, why would God go to the trouble to send us a deliverer only to have him killed by the people he came to deliver? It would make it seem as though uh, that God has failed that he's powerless to do what he promised to do, right? It doesn't make sense when you think about it, at least in the initial stages of it. On its face, it makes no sense. Now, as you come to understand why that had to happen, well, then it does make sense, right? That he came to die because he was making a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. And so that's what he means here, by the way, when he says he will be delivered into the hands of men. Now, at first glance, you may hear that and say, oh, yes, we know. The Jews delivered him. Pilate took him. Uh, Judas delivered him over. You know, we see the process play out in the Gospels, certainly. But if, if that's what it means, it only means that tangentially. Its true meaning is that God the Father handed the Son over to this purpose, which the Son voluntarily and willingly agreed to. It's said that way in Isaiah 53, of course, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. 
You see a cooperative effort there. The father was pleased to hand him over, deliver him to grief if he was willing to be the offering as he was. So Christ's resurrection, that is his return to life after three days, is evidence that he was dying to pay for someone else's sins and not for his own. Do you ever think about that? Because this is, the, this is what I'm getting at. Anyone who dies because of their own sin will never return to life on this earth again. You understand? Anyone who dies because of their own sin is permanently separated from God and from any opportunity to enjoy the creation again. So when Jesus returns to life, as he's uh, testified to do in the scriptures, on the third day and returns to this world, he cannot have died for his own sin for that would not have been possible. So that means his death was for some other reason. And, of course, we know from the scriptures, it was so that there'd be a payment available for those who need it, you and I, who would accept it by faith. That is the gospel. You can be forgiven of all your sin by putting your faith in Christ's substitutionary death on your behalf. Now, I'm going through that for two reasons. First, it never hurts to hear it again. Number two, I don't know if someone in here maybe hasn't heard it. And number three, because you need to understand, as simple as that may be for those who've heard it in here and know it well, when you're hearing it for the very first time, it's not so simple. There are questions, there, there are doubts, there's confusion on some of the elements of it, it's okay. But can you imagine being in the presence of the person who is saying they're gonna do this for us while they're still alive, looking rather ordinary, and trying to make sense of it in that context, it's not easy. And you can see clearly in their response in verse 23 that they are still not getting it. Now Matthew says they are deeply grieved. Now at first it might sound as if they've begun to understand it and they're worrying about it, they're grieving over it, right? Now unfortunately that's not what is happening and Mark makes it clear to us in his gospel because in Mark chapter nine, here's what you read, verse 30. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So now we see what Mark says, we realize that the, the grieving here was not for having understood, the grieving was for their confusion. They don't get it, and they're bothered by that. They're so bothered, in fact, they can't even bear to ask Jesus, what are you talking about? Mark says they were too afraid to even ask. Now, I want to be fair to these guys, and I think to be fair, a proper understanding was probably beyond their reach at this point. And if so, here's why. Because they could not appreciate why Jesus had to die until they understood two central Christian theological principles. And what are those principles? Well, first, they have to understand the significance of the incarnation. They needed to understand the significance of God becoming a man. Now, granted, it's truly impossible for any of us to, to understand how Jesus can be both fully God and fully man at the same time. That's an age-old dilemma. But that's not the issue. You don't have to understand how it's possible. You're not going to understand how it's possible. What you have to understand is the implications of the fact that it happened. That's what you have to understand. And those are the implications they were missing. And then secondly, you have to truly understand God's self-sacrificial love. We call it agape love in the Bible. 
That is the way God loves, self-sacrificially. It's the kind of love Jesus shows us when he dies for us. It's the kind you're supposed to show to one another in the body of Christ. But that kind of love does not come naturally to sinful hearts. It's actually the opposite of how we love. If you're loving with your flesh, so to speak, with your sinful nature, it's always selfish. Even when you're doing something for someone else, it's a quid pro quo. It's a manipulative effort. It's, a, it's designed to get something in return. It's selfish. People date selfishly. People marry selfishly. People pursue their, their lives with other people, family members, friends, selfishly. And we don't even realize we're doing it. We call it love. Rarely is it truly the Bible's love. Agape love is self-sacrificial in all respects. And that kind of love is at the core of Jesus' ministry, it cannot happen apart from God working it in us, and it is his motivation for going to the cross. Now those two concepts, think about them for a second. The incarnation, God becoming man, and the self-sacrificial love of God for us, that lies at the heart of all Christian theology and practice. If you give me some theological principle, give me some ecclesiological practice in the church, I will tie it back to one of those two and probably both. Because at the heart of it all, that's why we're here. Those two concepts are at the heart of everything. And here's how far I will take that. Unless you understand those two concepts, at least to some degree, you have not fully understood the gospel. Not fully. If you don't understand them, you cannot possibly understand why the Messiah came to die. Now, you may understand enough to be saved. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in appreciation of what has happened for you through Christ, you need to understand those two, God, those two principles. And the two scenes that follow next in Matthew, the one that ends this chapter and the one that begins the next chapter, are Jesus dealing with those two concepts in order to try to rectify their persistent confusion over his death. He's going to explain to them better what it means to be incarnate, and he's going to explain to them better what it means to have self-sacrificial love. It's just the beginning for them, but this is where it begins. And we're going to study each of them, one tonight, one next week. The one we study tonight is the one that ends this chapter, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? All right, this is such an intriguing moment. I love this little scene. I, here again, my favorite character in the New Testament, Peter. I always say, thank God for Peter. We wouldn't have half the stories in the New Testament if it weren't for what Peter likes to do on his own. So here's the scene. Jesus and his disciples, they've returned now from the north. Remember the last few weeks, really, uh, we've been studying how they went to Caesarea Philippi, then they were by Mount Hermon, that's where the transfiguration was, we think. And eventually now they've come back to Capernaum, which is on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. This is the adopted home of Jesus during the years of his ministry. So they've basically come home. As they enter the city, they go to Peter's home, it would appear. And while they're in the home of Peter, there comes a knock on the door, tax collectors, and apparently they're looking for Jesus. Now, these men would have been men working for the temple authorities. Their job is very much what you would think a tax collector's job would be, uh, to find people who owe the tax and make sure it's paid. Um, the tax they're looking at here is one that's required out of the law of Moses in Exodus 30. It goes like this, verse 11. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, 
Then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. That's the temple tax, and it's required of the sons of Israel. Once a year, every man between the ages of 20 and 50 was expected to pay that half shekel tax. And that money would go to the temple and the operation of the temple, and it was a part of how the Lord provided for the working operation of that facility and all that went into it. Now, the shekel is an ancient Jewish coin. In fact, they still use that term today. If you go to the modern Israel, their currency is called the shekel. But in Jewish antiquity, it was a coin. And in this day, as you know, the Romans had conquered Judea, so they were in charge. They had their own system of, of money. They had their own monetary unit called a drachma. And a drachma was its own coin. Now, the Jews valued the drachma at one-fourth of their shekel. So a drachma would be like 25 cents on the dollar. Okay, So a half shekel would have been two drachmas. And that's why you see the men here collecting the two drachmas. Now, there was no half-shekel coin in that day. So if you wanted to pay your half-shekel tax, you would either give two drachmas, which is the equivalent, or in some cases, two Jewish men might pair up, take one drachma coin between the two of them, and submit one coin for the two men, and they each get their half-shekel tax that way. Normally, you'd pay that tax around uh, Passover. While you're already in Jerusalem, that was the time of year you might as well pay. It's funny how uh, Passover comes right around April every year. So, you know, nothing's changed. Nothing new under the sun. Taxes are due in mid-April. Anyway, in the fact that these men are now up here, they're not in, the, uh, in Jerusalem, obviously. They're in, the, they're in the Galilee. They're on the Sea of Galilee. And this is sometime after the Passover. Remember, we're in the last year of Jesus' life. He dies at Passover. We're not at Passover now. We're halfway so, you know, through the year, more or less. So the fact that they've come all the way up here and it's off the, the normal time of year tells us that Jesus probably never paid the tax when he was back in Jerusalem for the Passover that year. And given that it was Peter's home that they're, they're meeting in, it falls to Peter to go outside and greet the visitors who've come to his home. So see the scene, you know, Jesus in the house, all the disciples with him, knock on the door, Peter's like, I'll, I'll get this, walks outside, has a conversation outside, which Jesus obviously overheard. And in the conversation, they say to Peter, doesn't your teacher pay this tax? It's a way of saying, you know, he owes this money, shouldn't he be paying us? And now Peter says yes. And if the narrative ended there, in other words, if that was the period in the end of the chapter, I think we'd all have to assume that, well, Jesus did in fact owe it, and he is about to go pay it, and that would be the end of the story, I guess. But because it doesn't end, and because we have what Jesus does next, we know that Peter answered presumptuously here. And as usual, he's wrong. <laughs> and here's the best part of the scene. Peter comes back inside, and I just imagine his face uh, coming back in, probably getting ready to ask Jesus to pay his debt. And that's why the text says Jesus spoke first. That is to say, Jesus interrupted him. He made sure that he had the first word because he knew where this conversation was going. And he wants to stop it in its tracks. And he throws a question at Peter. He says, when kings on earth institute a, a poll tax or a customs tax, does that tax apply to the sons of the king or to strangers? Now, a customs tax or a poll tax, 
This is much like what we do today, in fact. It's the tax that would be assessed on goods that passed through a territory on the trade routes. So you're taking goods from the Far East, you're moving them to the West, and you're passing through territories over the, the period of time it takes to get there. And as you come in and out of a territory, well, they want to get their due. They have tax collecting booths at the, at the points on the road where they can take customs tax from the people who travel. And so that was what Jesus is referring to here. But that tax, generally speaking, only applied to foreigners. It didn't apply to the citizens of that territory who moved on that same road. It was only to the ones who were passing through from other kingdoms. Now, in the Roman Empire of that day, the Roman citizen was generally not obliged to pay poll tax or customs tax. Those tributes were, were only paid by the subjugated, the conquered peoples that the Romans had taken over. And so, you remember earlier we met Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Well, Matthew was collecting one of these poll taxes, one of these customs taxes. And who would have been paying those taxes? Well, not the Roman citizens, the Jews. Which now tells you why Jews who served as Roman tax collectors were so hated by their countrymen. They were participating in that extortion racket that was going on. And that, you know, this is not unique to the ancient world, by the way. We have the same thing today. I mean, nations impose customs duties on each other. Uh, if you've ever traveled into other countries, sometimes you have to pay a visitor tax or an exit fee. Or, you know, there's all the ways we tax people when they come through us. You know, but I think in San Antonio, we have a hotel tax on visitors who come in from out of town. So it's just normal business. We tax the people that don't vote for us, basically, so that we can get away with it. That's true. Now, Jesus is speaking partly about that, but he's also speaking very literally here. That is, in a monarchy, which was the predominant form of government in the ancient world, a king was the lawgiver. And as a lawgiver, he imposed the law that he chose on his subjects. And those subjects, which would be then strangers under this analogy, had no choice but to do what the king required. But the king would not impose a tax on his own family members. It made no sense. I mean, why would I go to my own living, breathing son and ask them to pay the tax that my subjects pay? That money is going to be his one day anyway. He inherits what the father has. It's all the family at that point. So kings did not tax their own family members, usually not even members of their own court. Uh, it, it was for the rest of the world that those taxes applied. Okay? And so when he asked the question of Peter, who would it be that would pay a tax? Would it be the king's sons or the strangers? Well, you know, Peter answers the question correctly, saying, well, in typical form, it's only the stranger that's due the tax. And that leads Jesus to make his application. Verse 26, when Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. Now, he uses this simple example to establish a principle and it's a principle that's not just true in human government, it's true with God as well. And the principle is this. There is a distinction to be made between the lawgiver and the law keepers. And those who make the law and those who are obliged to keep the law are not the same. The one who makes the law for others is not obliged to keep the law for themselves. And in our culture, and I know how you're feeling right now, at least I assume I know, because in our culture, we struggle to understand the point that Jesus is making here because we have adopted a system of government that works very differently than this. Uh, our government follows principles like rule of law and equal protection under the law. So what those principles mean is that the law is the highest authority, not the lawgiver. And therefore, no one in the government is above the law in the way we prefer our government. 
And so in our experience, the one who makes the law is just as bound to keep it as those who the law was made for. They're one and the same in our government system. And so when we hear Jesus making this example, we're like, I don't get it. But our way of government is actually a radical notion and not the way governments worked in Jesus' day. And by the way, be careful about assuming it's better because remember, when Jesus sets up our government in a perfect world, what kind of government does he select? It's a monarchy. It's not a democracy. So I'm not anti-democracy. I'm not pro-democracy. I'm just telling you that you got to be careful about taking these values that we, we have in our culture and reading them back into the Bible. That's, there's no objectively good kind of government except when Jesus is in charge. All right? So in Jesus' day, most governments were monarchies, and monarchs made the law for their subjects, and they themselves were literally above the law. The law didn't apply to them. They made the law. Keep in mind, if you're the one making the law, how can you be subject to it? Because as soon as you don't like it, you'll change it. You can't be bound to a law you have complete control over, right? So by definition, the lawgiver cannot be accountable to the same law that they give. So that extended to their families, to their family members, as I said. And it was even that way in the Roman Empire to a degree, because in the Roman Empire, there were basically two sets of laws. There were laws for Roman citizens, and then there was different laws for non-Roman citizens. You know the moment of Paul in the, in the jail where he finally discloses that he was a Roman citizen completely changed the, the course of justice for him, didn't it? That's the nature of Roman law. So now, as you study this passage with me, you need to reorient your thinking a little bit back to a first century perspective and, and understand that a lawgiver inherently has the right to decide what the subjects under that law will be obliged to do and yet at the same time is not obligated for his own sake. That was normal. That was expected. It's not inherently wrong, nor is it necessarily unrighteous. It is simply the way the law, the law worked in that day. Peter knew this, of course, and that's why he answered the question correctly. He understood how things worked. Only strangers pay taxes to the king, and the sons of the king would never be expected to do that, right? But the bigger question for us tonight is, why did Jesus ask him this question? What is on Jesus' mind? Where is he going with this? And here's what he's doing. He's pointing out to Peter that Peter erred when he told the tax collectors that Jesus was bound to pay the temple tax. Jesus was not required to pay that tax because that tax was commanded by God to support the house of God, the temple, and the Son of God is not obligated to pay his own father a tax for the upkeep of his own house. That makes no sense. And that's the point he's making to Peter. This is an implicit lesson on the identity of Jesus. He's trying to make the point here, and what he's wanting to do is apply this principle such that then Peter would acknowledge that you are the son of God. That means you are the son of the king, or so to speak, you are the one who will receive all that is his. In other words, you're divine. The son of God is a phrase that was being used in that day. It's not clear to us, though, whether people really understood it at the level that we might today. They didn't truly understand what it meant that God was in flesh. I mean, if he had known that, he would have handled this situation very differently. And let me suggest to you that I'm right by giving you an example. Ask yourself this question. What if the Son of God had appeared to Peter and to the disciples inside that house, not in his lowly form of Jesus of Nazareth? I want you to imagine Jesus standing in Peter's house in his full glory, 
standing there uh, in the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. I want you to imagine that house filled with the glory of God, shining as brightly as the sun, his voice like thunder, and all the rest of what you see written in Scripture concerning the, the, the full glory of God, right? And Peter in the middle of that, standing in awe, maybe not even standing, maybe on his face, right, like we see so often. And in the middle of that scene, and Peter's like, I'll be right back. And he gets up, he walks outside, and then there's tax collectors, and they say, hey, does your teacher, is he going to pay the tax? What do you think Peter says at that point? I think he says, you know what, you guys are welcome to go in there and collect it yourself. Have at it. Good luck. Right? I mean, the point is clear. If he could have appreciated the deity of Christ, as he should have, right? What do you think he answers the question with? I don't think he says, yeah, we're going to pay that tax. Thanks for reminding us. I think what he says is, this is the son of God. That's his house. He doesn't pay a tax on his own house. So then back to the question, why did Peter say yes? The only answer is because he fails to appreciate the incarnation of God. He knew Jesus was the Christ. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew he was the Son of God. He has said all of those words up to this point, but I don't think he really grasped Jesus was God. And again, we even struggle with that concept. I don't know that it's fair to, to expect Peter to have had all of that in his head necessarily, but this is how he was going to learn it. You know, you and I might struggle at what it means that God became man, but at the same time, we must at least know this. Jesus is fully man and fully God, and he is no less one for the sake of the other. And so, as hard as it may be to appreciate that truth in all its dimensions, you also have to be careful not to dismiss it either. Because that's the tendency when you get to these moments in Scripture where there's two things in tension in a way that we can't fully resolve. Our tendency is to resolve it. But when you try to resolve it, you necessarily mess it up. You take one side or the other and you diminish it. We cannot see Jesus only as God. That is, so that we might overlook what it meant for him to enter into his own creation. On the other hand, we can't see him merely as human so that we fail to appreciate him as our creator. You don't get one or the other. You have to accept both. Both sides are essential to the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. If Jesus was not fully man then his death could not pay the price for your sin. Because the scriptures say God requires a person's life for the sin of a person. Those who sin must pay the wages of sin, which is death. So if Jesus had not been fully human, he could not have served as your substitute. God would still be looking for that human to pay the price for your sin. But because he was human, he could substitute for you. But if he was not also fully God, that is sinless and perfect as only God is, well then, his death wouldn't have meant anything. He would have died, certainly, but it would have been a death for his own sake because his own sin would have necessitated it. So only if he is sinless can his death be a substitutionary payment for us. He must be both qualified as a human being and qualified as God. And that's why Christians say, there is no such thing as many roads to heaven. You know, this old thing of people saying, well, there's many ways to get to God. I like your way. That's fine for you. I have my way. We'll just get along. We'll each have our way. Hogwash. You don't have a way. If Jesus' death on the cross was one of many ways to go to heaven, it's a meaningless death. It's absolutely meaningless. In fact, it's a wonder why it would ever have happened. If there was any other way, why would he have that way? 
The point is he was the only one qualified to do what is required to enter heaven. Have someone else stand exactly in your place and serve as a substitute for you with no sin of their own. There's no other human being, no other deity, no other option. You believe in that, you go to heaven. You don't believe in that, you know the alternative. And there's just no in between. There's not many roads. Well, no, there are. There are many roads. Only one of them leads to heaven. So in this case, what was Peter's problem? He was seeing Jesus just a little bit more man than God, maybe not God at all. It's not clear at this point what he understood. And his confusion on this point, I think, is one main reason why he and the other disciples keep struggling at why does he die? Because think about it, if he was just a man, a good man, a prophet, an anointed man, but still, just a man, then the prospect of his untimely death, it's devastating. I mean, just think about history. Alexander the Great died in his 30s, and his reign ended, and his kingdom was split up. I mean, there goes the the Hellenistic Empire, as it was under him. JFK dies early. The whole nation doesn't know what to do next. I mean, when leaders, human only, regular people die, things stop. Movements are ended. You know, progress stops. Things go differently. It's just the way the world works. And so when somebody says, I'm here as your Messiah, and oh, by the way, I'm going to die, it it seems to suggest, well, this whole plan I've got isn't going to work out so well for you, but let's try to make the most of it. It's a completely defeating uh, mindset. And I think for the disciples, they struggled with the notion that their hero wasn't going to make it to the end of the movie, so to speak. But when you understand Jesus is God, and that he became man so that he might die on our behalf. Well, now, now, the outcome is very different. It's not a failure of the plan. It is the plan. It makes all the difference in the world. And so in the light of that revelation, if somebody comes to that understanding, what they're forced to consider at that moment is, what did God accomplish by dying? And that moves you to the right conversation. That takes you to something that can save your soul. And that's the question that leads to important theology as a cornerstone of the, of the Christian faith. And these guys, as the apostles, they've got to figure this out. Not on their own, but they've got to get to it. They've got to understand it. So if you learn nothing else from your Bible, I don't just mean tonight, I mean ever, you learn this. Jesus' death was the plan of God to save you from eternal punishment. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't plan B. It was exactly what he needed it to be. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Being dead is part of the plan. You shall be saved. So this simple lesson about taxes was Jesus' way of leading Peter to a larger thought, to consider what it means that he is the Son of God. As the Son of God, he is the Son of the lawgiver and the lawgiver himself, and as such, he's not subject to the laws he gives us. Remember the moment in the fields when he's picking the heads of the grain and the Pharisees say, you're doing something that's not lawful on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus say? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. It's my Sabbath. I gave it to you. I can do whatever I want. It's your law. It's not my law. That's the whole point. Perhaps the hardest thing for Peter and the other disciples to accept was not that a man could be God, but that God would be willing to become a man. That's probably the hardest part, because every time they looked at Jesus, remember, you see him like, well, you know what you see, right? You see the blonde-haired, blue-eyed British actor, right? Every time you think of Jesus. What did they see? They saw a guy, and I, 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 in past lessons, we put pictures up there of what first-century Palestinian 
features look like, right? People who lived in that age and that day. And I, I suspect, if you were being honest with me, you would have looked at it and said, yeah, not really my type. You know, not the most attractive looking guy for me, I guess, you know. They're, I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's a, a day laborer in the sun kind of look, you know, just a rough and tumble kind of guy. I always tell people, he's a lot shorter than you imagine him to be. He's probably five foot four. He was, he was just a plain, ordinary guy. Now try looking at that and telling yourself when he's still alive, when you're like with Peter, that's God. Okay, that's God, that's God, that's God. No, that's God. Right? I mean, I'm being, it's just the nature of we are, uh, who we are. I'd like to think we'd do better, right? But the, the fact is that faith is not sight for a reason. And the plain and the ordinary is just not what you expect when you think of God. And of course, nor will that be who Jesus is into eternity. It was only for a period of history that he took that form. But still, that's when Peter was there. And so the temptation might have been for him and the other guys to explain away some of the theology that was being thrown at them and to grasp for his humanity more than for his divinity. And I get it, I get it. In fact, I think that's part of why Jesus came the way he did because as he says later in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I think it's perfectly suited to the purpose of this plan that he would come in such a humble, unassuming way. He didn't come, think about this, he did not come to earth as a man until he could show off. Right, he didn't come to show off his power and his authority. I mean, he did possess great authority and great power, and at times he did miracles as needed. But he didn't come with a heart to show off. You know, he didn't come with this desire to rule over everyone. In fact, it's clear he came to sacrifice himself and serve. Later he will rule. No, as Paul says, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. That's how Christ came. I like to say he came in ordinary packaging. And it was just part of the strategy to be approachable, to make sure no one would look on him in the days he walked the earth and think, too good for me, too demanding for me, too scary, too imposing, can't go to Jesus. No, he was the most approachable guy on earth at that point. But that ordinary appearance also allowed for people like Peter at times to underestimate his authority and his divinity and his humility worked together in the plan of salvation. And I love the way the chapter ends in verse 27 because you see both of those qualities come together in one moment. Verse 27, he says, however, Jesus says, however, so that we do not offend them. Go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. The famous scene of the fish having a coin. Now you get the better sense perhaps than you might have in the past about why this had to happen. So he explains to Peter, he's God, I'm the son of God, I don't have to do these things, I'm exempt. But then you have to imagine this conversation's happened inside the house, right? Who's outside? You still got tax collectors, they're still like, hope he hurries up, we got to the next house to go to. What have they just been told? He's gonna get paid, they're gonna pay. I mean, this is a problem. <laughs> They're expecting money. Imagine if Peter had gone back outside and told these guys, uh, you know, I, I kind of misspoke there. Um, my teacher's God, and so he's exempt. How do you think that scene goes over? And at the very least, it would have been an opportunity for the Pharisees to come back later and make an accusation about Jesus. You know, they, they, they would have said he was violating the law, though he wasn't because he was not bound to do that. 
But moreover, any suggestion that Jesus was God, had that been used as the reason, well, that could have been cause for the religious leaders to claim blasphemy and then move forward in that charge, which they eventually find a way to do anyway. So Jesus says very plainly, let's avoid offending these guys. And what that means is let's pay this tax. Though I'm exempt, I'm going to go the extra mile. Let's pay it. But I'm going to do it in a way that reaffirms this lesson. Because you don't want him to pay, the, you don't want him to reach into his cloak and say, here, Peter, here's a coin, let's get this over with. It just, it's a mixed message at that point. Either I'm exempt or I'm not. You're either the son of God or you're not, right? So to make it clear that he was the son of God, he pays in a way that only God can pay. So he tells Peter, go to the fish, go fish out in the Sea of Galilee, which is maybe 100 yards away at that point, maybe less. Go out to the sea, just throw a hook in, and the first fish you catch, open its mouth, you'll find a shekel in its mouth. Now, I love this solution. We all think this is awesome, right? This is God showing up in a way that just shows Peter, he's God, right? I mean, he walked on water earlier. You think maybe that would have got in there, but maybe the fish will do it. But I love this for several reasons. First, the obvious, it's a miraculous provision. It just underscores his divinity, yes. But it also underscores the fact that God is not dependent on man, right? He didn't need the money to pass through our hands to get to him to pay for his own tax. He He is the owner of everything, Right? He owns everything. I like to tell people sometimes when they ask, well, how does your ministry fund itself? Where do you get your money from? Like, from God. What do you mean? Where do I get my money from? God funds the ministry. Well, yeah, but what, what they I guess what they're asking for is what's the mechanism that leads people to want to, you know, there's no mechanism. God has all the money in the world. And they say, well, what if you don't get enough money? Well, then we stop. It's not complicated. We just keep going till the money runs out, and then we know that means God wanted us to stop because he has all the money in the world. If he wants us to continue, more money will show up. Now, it doesn't mean we don't watch the dollars and the pennies. It just means we don't fixate on the process. God will take care of that. And the same is generally true in ministry at all times. If a fish could be prepared by God to have a coin in its mouth, find the hook, get on the hook, right as Peter was there, etc., etc., is there any way, I mean, can someone write you a check? It's not that complicated, right? God is powerful enough to do that. So the first thing is it demonstrates that the money is not the point here. Jesus was not miserly. He was not afraid to give up money. It wasn't about the the feeling of, oh, I don't want to pay. It was about authority, about divinity. And then secondly, it demonstrates the humility of Jesus that he would condescend to pay a tax that he didn't know. And if you think about it, that's a little picture of the gospel. That he would pay a price for someone else that he didn't know. He's fulfilling the purpose he came and even coming to to the earth in the first place as an act of humility. Remember in Philippians 2 when Paul talks about the fact that he existed in the form of God but did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? But he lowered himself, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and so on. This, is, this in a nutshell is Jesus doing what he came to do, though certainly not the full thing he came to do. And thirdly, consider why he chose to put this coin in the mouth of a fish. You ever asked yourself that? Why didn't he say to Peter, look, go out there behind that rock, there's a coin. Or behind that tree over there, there'll be a coin. Why a fish? Kind of an interesting way to do it, isn't it? I think what he's doing is he's extending the teaching moment just a step further for the sake of Peter. Because if you remember, when Peter was originally called to be an apostle, how was he called? He's on a boat, he's fishing, and Jesus says, drop that net, I'll make you a fisher of men. And here goes Peter now fishing, and he returns with a needed provision. I think the message in that is obey me knowing I am divine, and I will provide through your ministry. 
The act of fishing for men, in other words, will result in the receiving of provision for your needs. And in fact, notice, Jesus tells Peter, this shekel you're gonna get is gonna pay for both you and for me. Now remember, the tax is half a shekel. So what they got, and there's no half shekel coin. So they gained enough for the two of them with that one payment. But I love the way he says it. He does not say this will be for us. That would have been more, I guess you could say, the more expected grammar. He says it's for you and for me. And I think that detail just emphasizes we're not equals in this. This is not a tax I owe. This is a tax you owe, but I'm doing it to avoid offense. You're gonna get it and pay for you and then for me. But we're not on the same page here. There's a difference between us. The incarnation of God is both the means by which we are saved and the example by which we then serve others. We get a payment of Christ on our behalf and then we recognize he made a sacrifice for us and in our following of him we are to do the same. It's from that understanding we become selfless as we serve. If Jesus can leave the right hand of the Father to become man and die on a cross for my sin, well, maybe I can get my rear end out of a recliner and serve someone in my body of, of believers. Or maybe I can set aside my own desire and do something for the glory of God. Maybe I can just serve others the way he served me. That's, that is the natural conclusion you draw your mind to as you consider what Christ did for you in the incarnation. That's enough for tonight. Next week when I come back, we'll deal with the second half of the problem which is their failure to appreciate agape love. I hope you'll be here with me for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, the word of God is always and ever present in our hearts with something valuable for us to know and to follow. Some days, Father, it's a practical word for our day. Other times, Father, it's a rebuke. And sometimes, as it was tonight, Father, it's it's deep and it's meaningful theology which sets our minds on you in the proper way. And I pray, Father, that that has been the effect for some and for all in the room, that they, they have come to see their God in a new and better way and to think more soberly of what it meant that you would take form like us. Live and die in our place. And Father, as we end tonight quietly, our worship, Father, will be in prayer, and as such, Father, I ask for those in this room, as they pray with me, as our minds and our hearts are directed at you, that if there are those who for the, maybe the first time are hearing the news of what it meant that you died, I pray, Father, now that in their hearts you move by your Spirit and draw them to you, and in this quiet moment you would show them the truth of who you are, and that in that moment, Father, they would feel the love of God as they've never felt it before, and I pray now that they would respond as they are called to do by Scripture to confess you. They may confess you quietly in their hearts as we sit here now, and then later at their mouth to those around them as they may choose to, but Father, let that conversion happen, let it change now, and let it forever be. And we ask for that, Father, for those who may be in this room who are seeking the salvation that comes only through you, and having found it, have embraced it, we pray for their hearts tonight. Send us out of here, Father, in your love, by the knowledge of your word, committed to serving you until we see you face to face. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.